Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 2. Operational Tour. The last time I was in an aircraft carrier, I was eight years old. My mother had taken me to a Navy week at Portsmouth. It was the scale of the aircraft carrier that assaulted my child's eye, with its flight deck so horizontally flat and its vertical surfaces, its superstructure and masts rising up into the sky like Jack's beanstalk. I was excited by the secret caverns to explore in such a ship, but alas, many of them were forbidden to the public. I'm still that child on just such a carrier now. I'm rather disappointed that the burly American seamen call me Buddy instead of Sir, although I'm able to explore. But I am astonished to find myself here, just 22 years old, a married man, an officer in charge of a flight of 12 Spitfires and their pilots, on a carrier that is steaming into action in war. I expected to be an artist, a painter. On my 17th birthday, my mother gave me a present of a studio, once a chauffeur's quarters above the garages at home. In it I painted pictures, listened to music and read avidly. I had begun that hunt for truth that so many other adolescents must have begun just before the war. 
In my case, it was particularly my love of music and paintings that nourished my inward life. Furthermore, as I became aware of the beauty and structure in the music of Bach and Beethoven, and in the paintings of Della Francesca and Blake, I linked them with what I was reading about the universe. In paintings, I knew it was quite impossible to be aware of the design of a picture if my eyes were too near the canvas. Thus, I felt that man was too much implicated with the universe to be aware of its order. But I sensed an insignificance and perhaps an intuitive part of my nature was being stirred. As I continued to read and think about things, there was, from time to time, deep inside me a great flash of brilliant inward light. It was a kind of love, a kind of inner recognition of the truth. Thus, I began to feel my way towards religion. At 17 and 18, I had my first pictures in the Royal Academy, but in 1939 I started a picture which was going to be my most ambitious work so far. I wanted to say something about my new awareness and its problems. The main theme of the picture was Christ calling one of his disciples from a family of fishermen busily mending their nets. Christ was walking along a narrow path symbolising eternal life, but he did not stop walking as he called. The disciple, who had rushed forward from the family and fallen on one knee before the master, was twisting round in a kneeling attitude as if imploring the master to stop. He wanted to have time to decide what to do. There was, of course, no time, and in this brief moment of decision, the disciple was caught between the beckoning hand of Christ and the outstretched hand of his father, between his spiritual destiny on one hand and his earthly duties and obligations on the other. I had hardly started this painting when the war began. All the life I had known hitherto stopped abruptly. I knew next to nothing about politics and international affairs. Hitler claimed Lebensraum for himself and the German people, but whether his claim was just or unjust, I had no means of telling. We had given a guarantee to the Polish nation. Hitler walked in despite that guarantee. Our ultimatum had expired and the sirens in London were already wailing. Like thousands of others, I had to face this situation and make a decision about the war. I found myself pulled in two directions. In my adolescent search, I had thrashed out certain principles and I felt that, as a human right, all individuals should have their chance in the adventure of living, a chance of unfolding their lives and developing their talents so long as they never wreaked their wills upon and therefore never jeopardised the chances of their fellow men. Yet here were Hitler and his Nazis, stamping about with terrible ruthlessness, destroying the hopes and chances of millions. I felt it ought to be stopped. On the other hand, thou shalt not kill. This dilemma baffled me, but the whole new atmosphere of war was baffling. I thought we English were tolerant, yet many people I met in September 39 were pouring scorn on the conscientious objectors who, facing the pressure of public opinion with great courage, had come to another decision over the problem of killing. I was angry with the scorn levelled at such men. I still am. There seemed to be a violent upsurge of blind and emotional nationalism. I've always lamented nationalism. I've always felt that it provokes division rather than unity amongst peoples of the world. In 1938, I'd been shocked to find an acquaintance focusing his idealism solely on his country. He was German, but I found many Englishmen doing very much the same. In such an atmosphere, trying to decide whether to fight or not to fight, I felt like the disciple in my painting, hoping that time would stop so that I could sort out my dilemma. I could not solve the moral problem of killing. It still worries me. On the other hand, I knew I was afraid to fight, and I wanted to face my fear squarely. I also felt that here was a wonderful opportunity to fly, and that, I am ashamed to say, must have influenced me. Perhaps I was swept along in the stream, doing what was expected of me. Nevertheless, although I signed the papers and took the oath, I made the mental reservations to follow my own conscience. Having joined up, I found myself experiencing a common emotion with all those who listened to stories about 1914 as they grew up, a sense of excited resolution that we too could cope with this monstrous reversal of life. 
Now, however, sitting here in this quiet cabin with the pulse of the engines under my feet, I'm already looking back on two and a half years of war, and I'm beginning to see it for what it is. I know very well that all over the world cities are being bombed, people are being split into small fragments of flesh and bone, they're being drowned in cellars or burned alive, columns of refugees are being machine-gunned, children are being thrown into ditches and women raped. Indeed, imagining these things, I'm immediately apprehensive for the safety of my wife, and I wonder if there's an air raid going on at home. Such horrors are in the nature of war and have to be faced, but there are other, more insidious things. When war began, our authorities stated that we would uphold Christianity and the truth, but it seems to me that most Christian principles have been discarded. Serenity, love and tentative reflection as to what is the good, the true and the beautiful thing to do are impatiently dismissed as irrelevant to the war effort. Anger, hate and ruthlessness are blessed by silence or openly encouraged as qualities in the fighting man. I am told that such things are expedient. I have even met a man, a clergyman in peacetime, who will no doubt return to his parish when it is all over, who openly avows that he has shelved his Christianity for the duration. To be a good fighter pilot, a common saying is that you should feed, fight and F. We are encouraged to live like animals so that the pressure of sex does not interfere with our efficiency as fighting machines. And what has happened to the idea of truth? I think the very nature of war has twisted it. Propaganda tells us as much of the truth as is considered good for us, good for us insofar as we are instruments of war and not individuals with a spiritual destiny. Our information about the Russians is a typical example of such distortion. When they were on the German side, we were told they were treacherous, cunning brutes. We were shown photographs in the newspapers of the Russian leaders and Ribbentrop, the German foreign minister smiling together over their pacts and treaties. But last year, when the Germans stabbed their old ally in the back, the beastly Russians became the gallant Russians in the twinkling of an eye. Now we are asked to help the courageous Russians by parcels and contributions of all kinds. I am denying neither their gallantry nor our obligation to help them, but I am aghast at our propaganda, our so-called voice of truth, which gives whatever part of the truth suits the war effort and suppresses everything else. I am told it is expedient. But what are the true facts about the Russian people? We may never find out. Even the personnel of the RAF wing who went to Russia with their Hurricane fighter pilots and have recently returned are under strict orders not to talk about what they heard, saw or experienced there. Propaganda is designed to provoke us to action, but such selected information is having the reverse effect on me. It's undermining what belief in action I have got. I ask myself, where do I stand and how do I orientate myself to a world gone mad? I still hold the same ideals as I held at the beginning of the war, while my dilemma about everything has increased. What of the future? There is only one consolation. I still love flying. I know that of the 50 Spitfires in the hangar deck, one Spitfire will bear me skywards next Monday morning, high above the blue Mediterranean. I loved flying as a child, and my nickname at my prep school was Buzz Buzz. I was continually zooming my model aircraft over the school desks and delighting in side slips and manoeuvres of forced landings in between the ink pots. It was the very limitations of manoeuvre that appealed to me, that if the aircraft flew too slowly it would drop and spin and fall out of control. In a forced landing, therefore, the plane had to be continually descending in a glide to keep up the speed. In flying real aeroplanes, the same things appeal to me now. Few joys can compare with gliding into land. My love of flying ran like a continuous thread through my teens. If I was painting and I heard the hum of an aircraft, especially if it was late in the evening, I would lay down my brushes and, rushing to the window, look out towards the aerodrome. I would look down the whole length of the kitchen garden, over the rows of vegetables, over the shapes of the fruit trees, to where, beyond the distant tennis court, the branches of three oak trees wriggled their way up into the luminous sky. I could watch the planes gliding downwards from the sunlit cirrus clouds.
What wonderful skies I saw from that window, skies that often stimulated paintings. I remember a great edifice of cumulus standing quite alone in the evening light. It was flushed pink. The foreground garden was dark below it. I was 17 and I was in love for the first time. I felt all the anguish of that experience for the girl lived far away. Thunderclouds poised floating on still air and yet within what currents stir in painful bliss the memory of her loveliness. But there was on the other hand a more macabre indulgence with the space of the sky and aeroplanes. I don't know why I used to play such a terrible game. It was probably a relic from my earlier childhood of being given toy soldiers and playing with them, of becoming bored and planting fireworks in the ground to make the game more realistic. I used to make a model glider of carefully folded paper and I would fill the body and wings with gunpowder. Standing at the top of my studio steps, I would strike a match, light the fuselage and send the model soaring out over the cabbages. What delight as it exploded into flame. I now know the difference between such childish games, such indulgent thrills, even the armchair excitements of the cinema and the reality of flying in war. The difference is fear. There are many kinds of fear, and it is said that the primeval fear of an eerie unknown encountered in dreams and at other moments of intense solitude is the worst of them all. Fear in action is not of this kind. It is essentially the simple fear of what may happen. It is the same kind of fear as may obsess the simplest actions in life. It is possible to experience it when walking downstairs if imagination feeds into the mind pictures of gouged eyes and broken bones as a result of falling to the bottom. This, of course, is fear of an accident, and if one were afraid of accidents instead of having the normal healthy respect of their causes, one should never fly at all. In flying, the possibility of accidents is balanced by a confident pride in one's skill in handling even emergency situations. It adds a certain zest to flying and accounts for the fact that fear is not a companion of one's training period, but only comes with the more deliberate hazard of facing the enemy. It is no accident that the enemy have one objective in mind, your destruction. The fact that your body may be burnt or broken or mangled is more than real. You know it's going to happen within the next hour. This is particularly vivid before the moment of takeoff. Once in the air, this dread anticipation is quickly forgotten. The act of flying drives it away, but in combat it is revived in a far more dreadful form. At certain moments it becomes a sudden explosive terror. Curling blue traces of enemy bullets a few feet away are racing towards you. You can see them photographed in detail. They appear to stand still. Time is stopped, but fear, that detonator of panic, holds you in a paralysis of horror. If you're not hit, the terror is quickly forgotten in the urgency of combat that goes on. But perilous moments can be strung together. When you are coned at low level by anti-aircraft shells squirting up towards you like hoses of red-hot meteorites, you know that each flaming blob is searching for you. Even while you throw your aircraft about in a frenzy of escape, each full moment is prolonged to the next, and what may take only a minute or less is slowed down to an hour of agony. The fact that you are deliberately inviting circumstances such as these on every flight you make adds to the long-drawn-out fear of waiting to fly. It is not only mutilation of one's body but periods of emotional torture that have to be faced. This has to be continually undergone. After days and weeks and months of its continual pressure, fear assumes a separate entity. It stands unbidden by any thought or imaginings as an invisible presence, an uninvited guest behind your shoulder an extra weight to carry, an enemy to be grappled with and overcome by repeated acts of deliberate will. It affects different pilots in different ways, but sooner or later all pilots need a rest from its pressure. As a pilot gains experience in combat flying, so the graph of his efficiency rises steadily, but when the cumulative strain tells severely upon him, such a graph drops steeply away. 
I'm told that he doesn't care anymore. He becomes foolhardy, takes unnecessary risks. He cracks, as they say. But not having experienced such a state, I have no clear idea what happens. Surely, however, different temperaments must produce different reactions to the strain. Perhaps the over-imaginative pilots might crack up quickly, while others may be unaffected and steadily get more efficient. Some directive has to be laid down, and at present in fighter command a tour is 200 hours spent in actual flights against the enemy. After this the pilot is sent for a rest as an instructor. I have done 140 op hours, so officially I am in full bloom. Part of me is therefore intensely interested in what lies ahead, but I have never had to face such odds as I will have to face in Malta. Will Malta be anything like the sweeps, rhubarbs and other sorties we made over northern France last year? Fear will undoubtedly be my close companion again. I remember the day last year when after living closely with fear I saw it and understood it for the first time. It was on a day when I returned from leave. On leave i have been sure of having a tomorrow to live in. I could lie in bed late or get up early just as I wished. I could make plans for the days ahead with the certainty that I would be there to carry them out. Even when I got off the bus at the end of my leave and walked up from the main road to the entrance of Gravesend Aerodrome, I had no real apprehension about the immediate future and I had no fear. It was when I entered the dispersal hut that I found it waiting for me. The squadron had already done two sweeps over France and was about to go out on a third. I assumed at once that I would be flying on the operation and that was the moment that fear came back. I was enveloped by it as if I had never been away at all. I was adjusting myself to it when I learned that, as all the places had been allocated, I would not be needed. What a relief it was. Fear was gone. Although it had gone, I began to feel acutely uncomfortable. All the pilots were gay, incredibly gay, and I remember thinking how childish it was to throw all the cushions about. I suddenly realised that I was cut off from them. Each one of them had deep within him that dreaded anticipation of the coming flight. Fear was amongst them, not that it could be detected from anything they did, for all was gaiety, yet I could feel its intense presence. Then I saw it like transparent smoke, wrapped round the flesh of each one of them quite separately. One pilot standing alone was choked with fear. Despite Bob's shock of hair curving upwards over his forehead like a fountain, he was very good-looking. Indeed, arriving at nightclubs in London, I had often noticed how women's eyes used to follow him as we crossed through the semi-darkness to our table. Bob stood quite alone in the corner of the dispersal hut, with fear playing over the features of his proud face, like small flames on a gas fire. I went over towards him, for he was an experienced pilot, and I had never seen him like this before. He wanted to talk about it, so I let him explain. He told me he was jinxed. He explained that on his last three trips he had been in trouble. On the first, the evening before, they had mixed it with a lot of 109s. Some cannon shells had struck along the side of his cockpit and his Perspex canopy had been blown off. On his next, the first that morning, his wheels wouldn't retract properly so he'd had to return. On the last trip, he'd got as far as mid-channel when his engine developed an oil leak. The temperature had risen so alarmingly that he'd broken away from the squadron and returned to the aerodrome yet again. Small things, mostly. I didn't think these were much to worry about. There he stood, about to go up for the fourth time, and I'll never forget his face. He certainly didn't seem to be in a fit state to fly, and I offered to take his place. He wouldn't hear of it. I'll break this hoodoo, he said, but I thought that the shrug of his shoulders as he tried to laugh it off was far from convincing. Thus, the squadron set out. An hour and a half later, most of the Spitfires returned again. Another trip was laid on for the early evening, and I was allotted my position in the formation. I took my place in the briefing hut where all the narrow benches were bending under the weight of the pilots. Fear had returned to me. I could feel the inner tension of my muscles braced against it. 
I was surprised to find myself happy to accept this burden. Facing its pressure was so very much better than standing around in separated safety. Fear is the passport to comradeship. But not alas with Bob. Less than two hours previously, his spitfire had been seen falling in flames near Latuque, and no one bailed out. The huge engines of our aircraft carrier throb and shudder. I can feel the cabin floor vibrating. I can hear the swish of water passing swiftly below the porthole. That afternoon, I had no time to wonder if Bob knew he was going to his death, or to ask myself if the strain of repeated trips might have sapped his reserves, cracked his resistance, over-intensified his imagination, and rendered him vulnerable. I was too busy with the technicalities of my trade. I watched the intelligence officer step up onto the platform at the far end of the room and point to a map that covered the end wall. He explained the course we were to fly, and he pointed out the red string which stretched from the rendezvous point with the bombers we were to cover southwards over the English Channel, across the French coast, and down into enemy territory towards the target. France was thickly punctuated by small round plaques of different colours. The officer explained... These are heavy anti-aircraft gun positions. These are light flak positions. These are Luftwaffe fighter units. These new ones have just been moved in from the Russian front. They seem prepared to play ball with us today, so you can expect to have some fun. Particularly here and here, his voice droned on. He cracked his little jokes, for he was not going. He explained the importance of the target, how the route had been chosen to give us the tactical advantage of the sun and other details. One trained part of me listened and absorbed the information because it might determine the decision later, while a second part of me continued my fight with fear. As the intelligence officer stepped down, our squadron commander took his place. He gave us an accurate time check and told us that we would start our engines in 12 minutes' time. My Spitfire was only a few hundred yards from the hut, so as the other pilots were taken by lorry to their airplanes parked in more remote places, I set out alone towards mine. There was no hurry, so I deliberately checked my rapid pace. I passed the patches of oil-clod grass where the Spitfires were run up in the mornings and I could see my shapely grey Spitfire ahead of me. I delighted in the rhythm of my step, in the easy flexing of muscles and in the silent articulation of joints. I had mastered the fear. I was resigned to whatever events the next hour might bring. I knew my body might be pulped and blackened by fire in a heap of molten aluminium in a French field like Bob's or become flotsam on the seabed, but I did not want to die. Walking slowly towards the wingtip, I looked at the lush spreading leaves of summer trees on the far side of the aerodrome and at the smoothness of the rounded hillside as it dropped down towards the wide silver Thames in the distance. That smooth, round hillside. I thought of the shape of women and what subtle loveliness is theirs. I was intensely aware of the warm sun, the blue sky, the tufted grass so springy to walk upon, and even the beauty of my coffin spitfire. The parachute was waiting for me on the elliptical wingtip, with one strap of its harness already fastened, hanging down in a loop. As I passed, I slipped my left arm through it, and the heavy chute, with the seat-type dinghy attached to it, slid off the wing and swung awkwardly and painfully against the back of my knees. I clamped the rest of the harness tightly around me, and then, in a doubled-up attitude like a crab in its shell, I trudged towards the fuselage. Two grinning mechanics in oil-spattered blue uniforms were waiting, their voices cheering and encouraging as they mothered me into the cockpit. I fastened myself into the seat by the straps, not too tight. I had to allow for my expansion as the aircraft climbed upwards and out from under the daily weight of air that encloses us at sea level, yet tight enough I didn't want to fall about the cockpit when flinging my aircraft upside down. Next, the oxygen tube. For had I no oxygen, my machine would come crashing down from high altitude. 
The tube had to be secured against flapping into my eyes while I was fighting, yet loose enough to enable me to swivel my head to see if I was being attacked from behind. It led to a mask that covered the lower half of my face, a mask that also contained my radio microphone. A helmet covered the rest of my head with radio earphones protruding each side of it. Thus, to outward appearances, I shed my humanity and became part of the machine. As I checked the array of instruments, almost 90 dials and levers, I glanced repeatedly through the thick windscreen towards a cluster of Spitfires in the distance. Suddenly, two puffs of blue smoke lingered for an instant above the long fuselage of one of them. The CO had started his engine. Peering round the long nose of my own aircraft, lest anyone was in the way, I reached down and pressed the starter buttons. The huge black propeller blades ahead of me jerked twice like the arms of a marionette. Then, all violent mechanical life and noise, the indicating needles on the dials crept onto the allotted positions, showing me the health of my Rolls-Royce engine. The consciousness that I had of my own body, bottled in perspex, gradually extended to include the short elliptical wings outstretched each side of me and the cigar-shaped fuselage tapering behind me to the tail. The power of the Spitfire was my power. Its graceful shape was my shape. I was a bird. Yet the bird could sting. 5,800 bullets and shells each minute were my responsibility. As a heavy bird is often ungainly on the ground, so must I have appeared to the watchers on the control tower as I waddled past. Yet inside the machine, trundling over the bumpy grass, I watched the wingtip dip and jerk against the line of distant trees. I was blind with that long, flat nose tipped up in front of my eyes, yet as I swung it to the left and to the right, I could see the other machines of our squadron lurching up the field. We were about to position ourselves for the squadron takeoff. On that particular occasion, I remember positioning myself close to the Spitfire flown by Roger, a Belgian pilot, and I remembered his helmeted head turning and how he winked at me across the narrow space between our wings. Beyond him, I had a fine view of all the machines as they assembled. It was a full complement of Spitfires as usual. We were always up to strength. If we had losses, replacement aircraft were flown in immediately. Our part in the operation, the small fleet of 12 fighter planes, was a magnificent sight. Their propellers churning, their grey and green fuselages emblazoned with red and blue roundels, cannons pointing forward from their wings, and the late afternoon sunlight glittering on their perspex cockpit canopies. The sweep was much the same as all the sweeps, yet in this carrier in which I am forced to live for a few more days before we fly off and head eastwards towards Malta, it occurs to me that the other services have nothing to compare with going into action as we know it in the RAF. We leap into a new element, totally different from our normal life on Earth. On that afternoon, fear receded because, near the zenith of the sky, I was enjoying looking back at the remote world. From 30,000 feet I peered down through my bubble perspex at the retreating patchwork of English fields, at the channel and at the slowly approaching French coast. The view was like a child's atlas, beautifully drawn and tinted, in lavender grey for the sea and lavender green for the land. I peered upwards at the inverted blue saucer of sky. Immediately over my head it was violet, but near the horizon a pale blue-green, very faint and tender. How slowly the French coast approached. Our formation appeared to hang motionless. I was no longer aware of the engine roar, for it had become a background upon which other sensations were experienced. I could hear the air hissing past the side of the cockpit. I was aware of my inhalation of oxygen and my breathing out against the hollow amplification of my microphone. I was aware too of the sensitive balance of flight expressing itself in the gentle pressure of my fingertips on the control column. Through the frosty air to my right, I could see the other two sections of our squadron, from each leader, as if attached to him by a long wire, trailed his three supporting Spitfires. Still further away, but quite motionless against the horizon, rode other squadrons, tight bunches of aircraft in the distance like clouds of gnats. There were still more below us, 
closer to the chariot of nine bombers which we, two or three hundred Spitfires, had to protect. I was flying on the end of our section of four and my flight was dominated by the gigantic presence of Roger's Spitfire. Its underside was huge, brooding upon me, reflecting the silver light from below. It hung almost motionless, swaying gently from side to side and occasionally undulating. I noticed that there was a leak of oil from somewhere under his engine and, fascinated, I watched the black stream creep back towards me along the bottom of his fuselage. Slowly it blackened the clean metal plates, the fierce stream of air beating at it and piling it up in black wavelets like an incoming tide. I watched it glisten among the rivet heads with tiny twinkling highlights and finally it reached the very end of his tail. There it disintegrated into millions of infinitesimal particles which were being left in the sky behind us. With a thrill of fear I noticed that we'd almost reached the enemy coast. I knew that behind me was a yawning chasm of emptiness and I turned my head to look at it. The pale turquoise and grey space was beautiful but I knew that very soon squat, black, angular fighters would arch down from above. We would soon have to keep a sharp lookout by weaving. Our section would stay one behind the other in a long line of aircraft, but since it was impossible for any of us to see into the blind spot immediately behind our own tails, we would twist and turn independently, with each pilot craning his head round to search that dangerous, vulnerable space. In turning fiercely from side to side, there would be an overwhelming sensation of weight. My neck would be compressed. I would have to fight the pressure as I twisted my body to look round over my shoulder. It would go on for an hour or longer. It would steadily get worse as more and more 109s would gather above us. The search behind my tailplane would have to be more and more thorough, for my life would depend on my vigilance. I knew from experience that our leaders would start flying faster, that it would be difficult to keep up with them. If they started to turn, I knew I would have to cut the corners to stay in formation. In doing so, I would not be able to weave or guard myself from attack. Our leaders would yell at us as if we were some extra encumbrance that they carried into action. Keep up! Keep in position! Don't straggle! They realised that most of the casualties were amongst the men on the end of the line. They knew that an error of flying might cause a man to lag, and that as bomber escort, they could not turn back to save him from the enemy. We were soon over the French coast. We started weaving. I flung my Spitfire to and fro with determination that no enemy fighter would get me. Roger's Spitfire, its huge tilted wings filling the sky, shot out to one side of me, then turned viciously, rushing back across my nose. If I got a little too close to him, there would be a collision. I might have to slam my throttle close to drop back out of his way. By deceleration, I might fall back that little bit too far. 109s would pounce. As Roger's Spitfire raced past my nose once more, I noticed, high above him, six Spitfires like pink fingers against the deep violet, travelling fast in the opposite direction. I wondered why they were heading back. My head twisted round in an effort to follow them. Straight wings, red noses. They weren't Spits at all. They were the enemy. Voices called out, 109's above, beauty squadron, 109's above and behind. Dozens of them. No, only four. Turning over sideways, they lunged down upon us like sharks. The sweep was very much the same as all the sweeps. We proceeded to the target and we turned for home. 109's were constantly above us, waiting their opportunity to strike. Yet a great dark area of enemy territory had still to be covered before we reached the pale sea that fringed the horizon. I was continually heaving my Spitfire up on one wingtip, heaving it round one way, then heaving it back again, twisting my head up and round and back over the other side, pushing my head hard up against the refreshingly cool perspex, peering backwards down the side of the fuselage, searching the sky behind my tail. I was tired. I grew excessively hot round the top of my stomach. I seemed to be fermenting like a compost heap under the weight of my clothes and harness. 
The straps bit into my shoulders. My oxygen mask was clamped tightly across my face. My jaw hurt and I felt sick. I felt so wretched that I remember whispering a prayer. Shoot me down quickly. Let me get down on the ground again. Then, with what terror I noticed, more 109s behind me, summoned, as it were, to execute the task. The 109s banked away from us as we returned across the channel. What relief. The slow, joyous approach of the English coast and beyond it the familiar towns. Short of fuel, I decided to land at Hawkinge Aerodrome, just inland from Folkestone. Oh, what relief. The long, floating, dipping, sighing, irresponsible diving, twisting, spiralling downwards over the white cliffs. It was glorious. With the throttle closed and the engine popping, coughing, choking, then gently murmuring, I made the long, straight, sinking journey inland towards the aerodrome. With a quiet turn along the chosen path of air, round the hangars and over the last of the treetops, my Spitfire dropped onto the green turf. I was soon stretched out on a bank of grass, watching the refuelling. A petrol bowser was parked in front of my Spitfire's motionless propeller, and in the end compartment of the bowser's oval sectioned tank, a small engine had been started up. Although there was a shrill ringing in my ears as a result of flying for so long, I could hear the clug, 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 clug of the pumping engine. An airman, sitting astride the nose of my Spitfire, held the wriggling pipeline in place. I watched it jump and leap as fuel was spurted along it. There were already 50 Spitfires, drawn up in a flat semicircle that foreshortened back towards the hangars. Several Bowsers were in position replenishing their tanks. The line was being continually lengthened as, one by one, more fighters dropped down from the long queue that murmured overhead. Each needed almost 90 gallons, thus about 20,000 gallons had been consumed on the operation. I reflected that the day before, when on leave, I had argued with men of the local council, trying to get supplementary petrol coupons for four gallons so that my mother, far from well, could do her shopping by car. How crazy it all was. During the sweep, a few bombs had been dropped and several aircraft from both sides had been shot down. The victims, who should have been enjoying the evening fading from gold to grey, were now dead. On the grass bank, I looked down at a sentinel ant who peered out from the mouth of a lush cavern. As I regarded him, he and three friends clambered quickly over my fingernail, then sported together amongst the sun-bleached hairs on the back of my hand. But my Spitfire was soon ready. I decided to fly back to my home base before it grew dark. The takeoff speed increased, easing back the control column. The uppermost branches of the trees flashed past. Romney Marsh slid below me, all dark and quiet, with the sea shining like a flat, opalescent shell above my left wingtip. Although the apprehensive fear I had felt earlier in the afternoon had been totally unnecessary, for the sweep had not been particularly dangerous, I felt quietly joyous to be alive. The responsive Spitfire felt the same. I flung it into a steep diving turn towards the north, levelling out just above the treetops. I was enjoying flying, as flying should always be, relaxed and smooth and undulating. A lazy evening. Stretching out my legs, I tapped the rudder bar with my toes. The tapered fuselage swung into the stream of air, first one side, then the other. Ahead, I glimpsed some labourers returning from the fields. My heart went out to them. They disappeared below the wing and reappeared in the open space between the wing and the tail. Two of them waved to me, but before I could wave back, some foreshortened treetops hid them. A farmhouse down to my left, and carts, and a dog in a funny position, probably barking. Thus, I flew home. The aerodrome when I arrived was drifting remotely below transparent veils of fog. After circling slowly above the white floor, watching two factory chimneys like incongruous lighthouses on the uncharted ocean of steam, my gull-winged Spitfire and I turned gently downwards. Skimming across silver tissues of fog, we sank through them into the darkness, turning steadily as buildings and belts of trees grew larger and darker, descending as some telegraph poles and a fence floated past. Then the aerodrome grass widened out each side of the lifted nose. Bang, lurch, bounce, I made a bad landing. 
Two mechanics who had been watching my arrival re-entered the hangar doors. I switched off the engine. Exhausted, I just sat there. I had accomplished nothing. I hadn't even fired my guns. It had been a sweep, very much the same as all the other sweeps. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.